John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 583.IS3323, certificate number 50975, the hero of Camperdown. Have you ever done anything heroic? Have you ever had a moment of glory? No. Modern life doesn't afford many opportunities, especially now that society has kind of found a way to make sure only poor and underprivileged people even go to war. I have dreamt of an, having an opportunity to do something heroic. And I definitely challenge myself to imagine if it were a situation where my life was at stake in order to help others that I would not cower uh, at the challenge. Yeah, how are you in a crisis? Pretty good. You feel like you keep a cool head when there's a flat tire or a oh, blown yeah. fuse? All that a- stuff. I'm I'm calm, cool, and collected. And also in situations where crowds get squirrely, I always kind of find a find a place where I can, you know, see everything. And I don't I don't get uh, I don't get restless. I would not get caught in a stampede. You're always thinking if this turns in some way, I'm going to lead one of the two tribes. I do. I do think that I think I always am looking at exits. I always position myself in a situation where I won't get trapped. And I do think all the time, like if this turns, that's why I never wear high heeled shoes because you cannot climb a chain link fence in high heeled shoes. There's um there's a Swedish movie a couple of years ago called Force Majeure about a, a dad at a ski resort who, yeah, who sees an avalanche. It. You know the movie, right? I saw it. It was pretty brutal. In the in the moment, he he uh he runs instead of staying with his family. And then he's trying to compensate for that shame. The rest of the movie is just about his psychological kind of breakdown over it, over this new knowledge of himself. I think it was just remade with like as maybe a comedy with Will Ferrell and yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris, Kristen Wiig or not K- that Kate McKinnon funny. or somebody. Yeah, the Swedish version is not funny, but it, that's the kind of thing that made me think, I wonder if I'm that dad, despite like what I think of as this fiercely protective love of my kids, I've never had to see what that looks like in an explosion. But you've never, I mean, in all the times that you've been tested in small ways, flat tire uh, in a rainstorm in the middle of the night, that type of thing, or, or you may have, you may work to avoid that kind of 
challenge. But uh, when the chips are down, are you pretty calm? I am calm, but I don't know if I'm a good decision maker. We, I, I feel like I do make the right call, but I don't feel like this is my time to shine. We, we, we were at a, going over a bumpy road in Central America earlier this year, and we knocked a panel off the bottom of the car, and something was leaking. And I couldn't tell if it was oil. I couldn't tell if it was something. We It turned out to just be condensation. We were fine. It was from the air conditioner. Right. Um, but I couldn't tell. And um, nobody, like, Mindy is not, uh, doesn't think of herself as having a cool head in a crisis. So it was really like, what do you want to do? And I said, well, we're going to have to drive back to that place back there and see if somebody can take a look at it or has a phone because we have no signal. And she was like, shouldn't we just go on, go out? And I was like, no, I don't. I don't think so. Um, so it was, it, it was the safe choice and I didn't feel like I was, I didn't feel panicky. Uh, I didn't have any physiological reaction, but I did think I have no idea if I'm doing the right thing. And if I, I don't think, you know, I, I wouldn't vote for me in some plane crash scenario. <laughs> I've put myself in those situations, maybe more than the normal person. I, I, I flew my four-year-old girl across the country with me to buy a truck I'd never seen before from an unscrupulous person in New Hampshire sure. and then set off across the country with her in a car seat. And the Did truck, you have to bring her? The sitter was, was busy? No, or? I just felt like, what an adventure. Come on, sweetie. And uh, the truck caught on fire multiple times. We were stranded on the side of the road in the middle of the night. And then I bought a vintage RV, and that also caught on fire. <laughs> I ended up, uh, uh, the trip across America, she ended up flying home from St. Louis. Her mother came out and got her because it was clear that I ha- did not have good judgment. In, uh, in living memory, most of the options for heroism in American life have come via wartime. Wartime or in situations where, what, there's a, a shooter at the mall. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. When every public space is wartime now, you're going to see more of those. Although that has not produced that has not produced a wave of uh of lauded uh no. clear-headed uh this good- sharpshooters the way the way a certain, the gun lobby would expect. Yeah, the good guy with a gun narrative has not produced a ton of American heroes. Is the media hushing it up? Are there really a lot of great Sam Elliott types uh, coolly taking out mall shooters and we're just not getting the reportage? I think the uh, I think the soldier of fortune types would have you believe it. They all have stories about someone at a gas station that defended a, a helpless mom. But those generally those stories generally have a very racist subtext. <laughs> and also, you know, if you do an independent search, it's kind of not – that's not the story that – it's the, the same take don't. I have on UFOs and Bigfoots, which is now that we all have cell phones, we would actually know if a lot of great vigilante justice was taking place. I think there are uh, enough stories of people like who do have concealed weapons permits who ended up dead <laughs> in <laughs> mass shooter situations. Yeah, you do see a lot of the other story. Um, and, you know, as recently as Vietnam, you know, on the borders of our lifetime, there was a draft where like normal college students studying Italian literature suddenly uh, were placed in life and death scenarios and had to see what they were made of and maybe maybe could save a dozen lives. Or Right, not just the all-volunteer army where the suggestion is that the army's made up of either people who are shooting womp rats back on ta- Tatooine or, as you say, an, a, a kind of 
underclass that uses people with nowhere else to go. Yeah, the, or uses the military as a as a leg up or mm-hmm. a way to, you know, become full fledged citizens. That's true. I mean, I don't want to make it seem like they have no other options, but they have they have chosen a, a, a respectable and it's uh, a good job. An honorable one, you know, right. and and a realistic one, as opposed to maybe other ways out of whatever their lousy town or neighborhood was. Um, the, uh, the, the relative of the draft that was common in Europe for, I mean, there was conscription in many European powers for centuries. Britain, interestingly, even at the height of its empire did not have conscription except for one brief period. So, but despite that, despite being an empire without a draft, they were all in on what was called press ganging. Whoa. They would, uh. Just grab guys out of a bar and. Walk them down to the port? Out of a seafront tavern or more often off of a ship. Um, people who were already serving on merchant vessels, whether in port or at sea, could be handed over at any time. And this was usually wartime. Um, suddenly, uh, when the British Navy was at war, it needed 40,000 more men than it had. They would just pull up next to a, a ship carrying wheat and say, half of you, come on? You, 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 and you. Wow. It was a lousy gig. Um, it was, they were, did not pay competitively. There was no GI Bill or anything. If once, you know, press gang sailors were paid roughly half, maybe what they could have expected huh. on a merchant vessel. The pay was always late. It was, you know, you, your month, your money would be held, held in arrears for two months. And I think a six-month reserve was also held back because the desertion rates were so high, as you would imagine with a non-volunteer <laughs> Navy. Uh, tw- every year, 25% of the British Navy would desert. Um, and the, the reason why the pay was so low is because it, is it, it had been fixed at a certain amount since 1653, and 150 years later, Parliament had never adjusted. It's like, it's like our minimum wage problem. It kind of sounds like uh, podcast advertising. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Um, mostly it was, it was, occasionally there would be landsmen, as they said, you know, they would just pull up to some place with a mine or a quarry and ask who wanted to go to sea. And if nobody said yes, they would either get people drunk and ply them with rum, or they would just seize them and right. talk to the foreman. Like, which ones do you want to get rid of? And this was controversial. Um, often, <laughs> <laughs> really? Well, often towns would rise up in defense of, because there was no, again, there was no conscription. Right. No, you know, courts, this was widely held to be unconstitutional, according to, you know, uh, British law. But the feeling was that Magna Carta did not hold at sea. And specifically, it was really kind of a real politic thing where no court wanted to be the one that says, this thing that we need to maintain a fighting Navy and Empire is illegal. So did, despite were, the fact that there's no re- legal rationale, this held up for centuries. Were there attempts to uh, to institute a draft? Was the concept of draft, did it exist? Britain only had conscription for, you know, a, a few short years. And I think it really must have run counter to everything. You know, we were kind of talking about how the West United States feels like a freer people not be held to those you know, those uh, decadent East Coast folks. And there, there's kind of, now that I think about it, kind of a similar dynamic in Europe where being an island, um, British subjects often think of themselves as a hardier and freer and more independent people than those on the continent. Right. Um, so continental practices of conscription might have been thought of as tyranny, you know. That's not the kind of monarchy we have here. Right. But if it happens in the back alley or a coal mining town... 
it doesn't have quite the same visibility. You would just have to wink at it. And there, there were, were laws that, um, that required the Navy to leave a merchant ship with Enough to sail. Enough to sail. But what would often happen is the Navy would be like, okay, we'll take these 10 guys and you'll take these 10. And that's where they would hand off all their bad apples. Oh, oh, there'd be a little switcheroo. Yeah, you could you could say, no, no, I know you need, I know we're taking your men. So we've got these 15 and they'd pull them out of the these, brig. These 15 drunks. <laughs> and sometimes they wouldn't even be drunks. They'd be shills who were told, hey, go aboard this ship and then desert as soon as they get to port. Huh. And then come back to the Royal Navy. So they were running all kinds of scams. Hard to believe that the Royal Navy wasn't a upright institution. Look at a map. The whole world was red, right. and you got it. You need a big, you know, in the Napoleonic Wars, uh, roughly half of the Navy was had been pressed, as they say. Wow, fascinating. Uh, in uh, and, and people knew, like it was a human rights issue that people were writing about. In 1820, in 1812, a six-year-old girl wrote and had published uh, in London, a poem called On the Cruelty of Forcement to Man. And she grew up to be Elizabeth Barrett. That was Elizabeth Barrett Browning's first published work. Oh, wow. At six years old was complaining about the cruelty <laughs> of, of press ganging. I mean, you don't, you want to be careful about com- uh, comparing things to chattel slavery right? because of issues of historical and racial sensitivity. But one thing that this does have in common is the fact that everyone is kind of saying... Yeah, really, this is indefensible, but it's the basis for this whole institution. What are you going to do? Well, you don't have a Royal Navy if you if you don't have these 60,000 guys. Yeah, you can't just pay them. You can't just pay them, <laughs> you know, regular wages. How would we make a profit? And as we know, this was a controversial enough um, issue that it was not just young, young righteous six-year-old girls in London. It was also one of the root causes of the American Revolution and the War of 1812. Well, the, this was during a period when when slavery itself was uh, was hotly debated in Parliament, right? Early eighteen hundreds. Yeah, this is contemporary with those kind of discussions. I wonder if the comparisons were ever made. Um, I mean, at least these people are getting a different job and getting paid, and they're going to get out as soon as the as soon as the as soon as Napoleon stands down. Well, you know, the transatlantic slave trade was uh, was presaged by indentured servitude in America, which was, in this is most very cases, close to, Scots and Irish. Yeah, this is very close to endangered servitude in a lot of ways. I mean, even though even though America, the colonists complained bitterly at, at colonists being press-ganged off of, you know, because they got 3,000 miles away and they thought their problems were over. Right. And it Thank really is God. like sending a kid off to college 3,000 miles away and he still has to keep coming home for quinceañeras or whatever. <laughs> uh, I understand why they thought, but they were still British subjects and the crown had no problem pressing colonial vessels. Uh, and the Continental Congress did it as well uh, during the war. I think there's only maybe one case on record of a British naval, a, a British seaman being pressed into the Continental, continental, Navy. continental Navy. But we at least got one. <laughs> Paybacks. But this is also, as you as you said earlier, during the Napoleonic Wars. So it wasn't just that. Bonaparte. The, the, that's right. The, the, the British were maintaining their far-flung empire, but they were also fighting the French on uh, half a dozen fronts. And a very legitimate fear of invasion. Um, the, the press ganging was unused after the Napoleonic Wars, although it stayed legal on, in, in British code in, well in, into the t- early 20th century. Really? I wonder if theoretically they could have press-ganged soldiers into World War One, soldiers and sailors. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but that's a, around the time when the laws finally changed. But yeah, the Napoleonic War was the golden age of 
press game because this was a desperate need. This was a fear of invasion. Right. Well, and yeah, you can't fight a Trafalgar without sailors manning those guns. Uh, which brings us to a specific battle of the Napoleonic Wars, the Naval Battle of Camperdown, not as famous as Trafalgar, but fought in October of 1797 off of Camper Like, how do you say UI in Dutch? Is it Camperdine? Camperdween? Uh, we'll hear from the Dutch on this. Yeah, I think Dween. Uh, so off the coast of the Netherlands. So this uh, is very, very early in the Napoleonic Wars, a long time before... It's so early that Holland is still a naval power. Oh, right. Um, and in the service of Napoleon now. Uh, and in fact, a, a, a large Dutch fleet is sailing to take on French troops to then head for an invasion of Ireland. So the future Dutch, uh, uh, the future, um, the future of Dutch speaking Ireland, I guess, is on the line here. This is what year? 1797. Because... I mean, right after that, uh, like Britain and Russia invaded Holland. Holland was a real hotspot for for hot action. They chose the wrong side. They did. They should have told Napoleon to go suck on a tulip. Well, so so here we are. Set the stage. Uh, so Admiral Duncan, leading a British fleet in his flagship, the Venerable. Uh, tries to stop this Dutch fleet from its mission, which again is pretty high stakes, invading the British Isles, an invasion of Ireland. Um, Napoleon could have Ireland. Uh, should have given it to him. (laughs) Well, we'll see. (laughs) Aboard the Venerable is a young sailor from Sunderland uh, in the north of England uh, named Jack Crawford. Great name for a sailor. It's it's really your all British naval movies probably have a Jack Crawford a righteous Jack Crawford below decks. Uh, he was an apprentice who had been press ganged the previous year into the Royal Navy, and was now serving aboard the Venerable. Uh, he's twenty three years old. Now the 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 cannonballs and uh, grape shot begins to fly uh, as the two fleets engage. And uh, it's not clear at all uh, who has the upper hand in the chaos of the melee. And at this point, a lucky shot from a Dutch cannon goes right through the mainmast of the Admiral's, Admiral Duncan's flagship. Sounds like a lucky the shot. HMS Venerable. But it was a well-aimed... You, you think it was Dutch Sniper, the yeah, movie? yeah. I feel like there's no way to actually aim a cannon at a mainmast, right? Do you th- well, but that was a major technique of naval warfare. Shoot down the mast. So, I, But it's not a big target. Well, you know what they did? They took two cannonballs and connected them with a chain. So and smart. Then they cunning sh- Dutch. Yeah, they shot it out, and the, then the thing, you know, it was, it was twisting like a— It's a bigger uh, radius. Yeah, what, what is that? Uh, that uh, like a bolo? Uh, a bolo, right. Like a— uh, like a, uh, a, a bolo. A, an Argentinian cowboy uh, weapon. Or gaucho. Or gaucho, thank you. Uh, or as you would say, gaucho. This is a problem because, I mean, it's always a problem for a ship to lose its mast, much less a flagship. But in this case, this flagship is flying the Admiral's colors. Uh-oh. This is, these are the colors of the Admiralty. And for those colors to be lowered is, in fact, a sign of naval surrender. 
so to the degree that when this would happen in battle, it would be not uncommon at the time for the firing to stop and someone to say, did you mean to surrender or did you just, you know, like, like what's going on here? Like, are, right. are we done? Are we done here? Right. Uh, so a lot now hinges on the fact that the flagship has lost its colors. Enter young Jack Crawford, who in a moment, you know, he has his force majeure moment. And despite the the grape shot or whatever uh, whizzing by him. He stood on the top of the broken mast the bo- and pretended to be a log. The boy stood on the burning deck. <laughs> yeah, he painted himself the blue of the admiralty flag like Tobias Funke. No, he grabs the f- colors, grabs a handful of nails and a marlin spike. Sure. Big hammer, naval hammer-like. Every futureling filling. knows what a marlin spike is. They've, they're all sentient marlin spikes now. They, they probably live in Marlin Spike Hall. And he uh, shimmies his way up the mast. I'm sure shimmying is not the correct naval nope, term. That's a 100% the correct naval term. Okay, good. He shimmies. Arr, matey. Shimmy up the mast. Shimmy ye up the mast and repair the shattered topgallant. He gets to the topgallant of the mast, which again has been has been taken out by a cannonball. And all the, you know, he can't rehang the uh, flag, but what he can do is grab his nails and hammer it back, hammer the colors back into the top wow. of. The mast, which is where we get our phrase, nail your colors to the mast, this storied moment. Uh, this restores morale aboard the ship. A great cheer arises. Sure, and a major F you to the enemy. To the, the Dutch who are, I don't know, they can't care that much. I can't imagine the Dutch being fiery naval uh, uh, combatants. Oh, at the time, though? I mean, if you think about... This isn't the modern Dutch graphic designer you're picturing here. But, you know, Indonesia was a far-flung colonial enterprise, entirely Dutch, until the war, until World War II. No, they were, they were, I mean, for the previous century, they had been one of the dominant naval powers. I mean, it's funny to imagine a modern Dutchman up there. Well, yeah. I mean, they're great shimmiers, what I know of them. (laughs) They're tall. They they have to shimmy much less than we do. But also, they they have a very strong sense of justice there. I don't think that they would, um... They wouldn't take it lying down, but they also, I don't know, I can't imagine them having that strong a feeling about anything. They wouldn't count out a Napoleon today. True. Futurelings, in these challenging times, we want you to know that we're all in this together. Are, are you getting emails like this from everybody, from every hotel you've ever stayed at, from every company you've ever bought a USB cable from? It's so exhausting. I don't care. I, it's I. Not only do I not care that Delta Airlines wants to wants me to know about all the things they're doing, but like the person that I that company I bought a, a friendship bracelet for my daughter for one time two years ago. I don't. I, I don't know. I care what their COVID nineteen response is. I preferred it earlier in the epidemic when no one had really anything to say, and so they were all just telling me they were monitoring the situation. Yeah. Oh, thank goodness! I'm I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, uh, what Coles is monitoring events as they develop. I, I hope they keep me in the loop. What I what I want those emails to say is, um, in these trying times, we realized that we had two layers of unnecessary management in our corporate structure, and so we have uh, laid off seven vice presidents, <laughs> and we have taken their salaries and increased our employee health benefits. I want. I don't even want them to lay them off. I would actually like them to to. Give them up to us. Oh, to do as we will. What would you do with seven vice presidents? Um, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't get my own vice president would, unless this is a country that only a company that only has seven customers. Would you hook them to a sleigh? I would hook them to a sleigh. <laughs> 
Yeah, maybe they should have a raffle. On Dasher, on Dasher. One of our customers gets all the surplus vice presidents (laughs) who screwed up our supply chain with just-in-time accounting. I want one of those emails to surprise me, though. I mean, Delta Airlines sent me one the other day that was like, we're blocking off the middle seats, so... Everyone is. Did that surprise you? There's like a there's like a window seat and an aisle seat now, and it's like, why wouldn't you just? Yeah, like that's how it always should have been. Um, <laughs> you should have just had those big '70s lounge chairs instead of these these terrible little porta potties. What What would surprise you? What about a retailer that's like Nordstrom now only sells um, like full body. Uh, Radiation suits. I mean, the problem with retail is that I was already afraid that retail was dying and this isn't helping. What I want is to not return to normal. I know we have to return to some new normal, but I don't want to get emails from people reassuring me that everything's going back the way it was because the way it was wasn't that great. The way it was was clearly a problem. Yeah. I would like especially big companies to tell me that they have reorganized. And that they have a new compensation package for their board of directors, which is not so lucrative for them. And I, and I want there to be more working from home and less commuting and less, uh, you know, I mean, all the things that we all kind of keep hoping. Well, we're speaking to our community, John. What, what, um, what outlandish promises would you like to make them about? On our behalf? Yeah, about the Omnibus uh, in this new uh, world. We, as as Creators of Omnibus, in these trying times, in this economy, we want you to know that we sympathize with you and that we're doing everything we can to continue to make our quality programming without really changing anything about our corporate structure. We don't have any vice presidents to fire is the problem. We were already lean and mean. Ken and I are going to continue to have generous compensation packages as we for both of our employees, as we continue to downsize our two employees, the two of us, we are deeply appreciative because we know times are tight, and we know some people um, are not at a place where they can donate to a podcast they like. And guess what? For you, the podcast is free, as it always was. We we uh, with our compliments, like the New York Times during the coronavirus, we are letting you listen to our podcast for free. But unlike the New York yeah, Times, except all of our coverage <laughs> is now free. You can do the omnibus spelling bee and the crossword and the Sudoku every day for free. Um, for those of you who have the good fortune to still be uh, gainfully employed in a tricky economy, we know many of you do support the show, and we thank you for that. Anybody uh, who would like to contribute to the ongoing health of the Omnibus can do so at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. We are here for the duration. And we would like to, again, reassure you, this is not the apocalypse. That should be self-evident by now. Um, What it is is just a colossal mismanagement and and bungle job. It's a bungle job, but... uh, America has survived many a political bungle job. That's right. And also, you know, this isn't the first time that uh, that people have had to learn not to kiss bats. It's been 100 years since the last time we had to learn this. That's right. So I understand why you don't remember. It happens every once in a while. It seems like some unprecedented loss of certainty, but really, the, the message of the omnibus is that it's not. It's really not. I mean, just the... Um, like just the presidential campaigns of 1972 should uh, should be all the evidence you need that these are not the worst of times. 
Uh, we've we've seen a lot worse than this. To most of our listeners, that sounds about as distant as the Spanish flu. So I don't know. I don't know if that helps anyone. But thank you. Thank you for your support of Omnibus. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you. If you can support Omnibus at, Om- at uh, Omnibus, no, at uh, patreon.com slash Omnibus. And uh, also, do not vote for George Wallace in the upcoming election. Thank you. So this is a pivotal moment in the battle. The uh, Dutch flagship is quickly captured, not by Admiral Duncan, actually, but by one of the other ships, then captained by William Bly, oh. who would go on to... Go on to great fame and fortune. An infamy aboard the bounty, Mr. Christian. Uh, but this turns out to be the critical moment that not only ends any dream Napoleon had of invading Ireland, but pretty much ends Holland as a naval power. They will never be a first-rate maritime Isn't that power extraordinary? Again. Uh, and, you know, it's it's hard to say how much of this is something, because, you know, Crawford's heroism does get amped up quite a bit in the public consciousness, as we will see. So it's hard to say how much of this is a little bit exaggerated to make the moment more of it than it was because everyone likes a story. And especially in wartime, this is the kind of patriotic thing that's going to make everyone happy back home. Um, But it appears to have been his force majeure pivotal moment where it turned out he was a hero. And even though he didn't want to be there any more than the other half of the press gang crew did, uh, he saw those colors on the burning deck and he was not going to have it. Yeah. You wonder, uh, you wonder to what degree, like patriotism is one of those shifting uh, allegiances. Like if if I were in an argument with someone in a camouflage baseball hat with an American flag on it, that person would be claiming a kind of superior patriotism, and I would be arguing uh, that patriotism was anachronistic compared to, for instance you know, some principle of human rights. But if, but then imagine some snotty German appearing at right. your side and saying something bad about uh, American foreign policy. If I were press you, gang, you and the camouflage hat would gang up on that guy. Well, that's right. I mean, I, I become, I become very chauvinistic about America when I when feel the calls like, are coming from outside the house. Right? Well, that, and also I get pretty chauvinistic when a guy in a camouflage baseball hat suggests that we need to suspend some American oh, I principle see. I see. that I feel is sacrosanct. So all these people that are like, we need to, you know, we need to just take Congress and put them all in jail. I'm like, well, hold your horses, mister. And then I raise the, I strike the American then that's flag. That's when you put on a, a hat that's the Constitution. I do. Well, I put on a hat that's a bigger American flag. <laughs> Uh, yeah, not your, not your cap with the French on it. That would, that would give the wrong impression. No, I don't do that. I don't put on a tricorn hat. Anyway, Jack Crawford's, uh, moment of heroism does not go unnoticed. He becomes the hero of Camperdown, uh, nationwide. He is brought to London where he meets with the Admiralty and King George III himself, uh, grants him an audience. The Navy wants to hold a huge parade and... Crawford is very uncomfortable with fame. Well, now, how do you feel about this? Because on that same ship, there were men who were firing a cannon shot every 15 minutes, sweat right. pouring down, people's arms getting blown Some off. Some of them probably wounded. And this kid climbs up a pole and hammers a flag in, and all of a sudden, he's the hero of Camperdown? Right place at the right time. I guess you could make the Iwo Jima argument. We got statues of the six guys right. pushing up a flag, but they probably did not hit the hardest, you know, the the... 
the most dug in Japanese positions. Almost every Medal of Honor winner, I think, ends up being kind of shy about the award because he's thinking about the 15 guys that died all around him. It's the rare Audie Murphy that's like, yeah, that's right. I did. I, I did run out there and grab that machine gun. I mean, I would think in my case, I would feel like I couldn't even take really credit for something I had just done in a split second like that. Right. But uh, if you went on Oprah and sat on the couch and she put her hands together and said, Ken, what were you thinking? Yeah, a myth gets constructed today. Uh, and I guess maybe with just less media, uh, there's less opportunities for him to retroactively create a narrative of which he's the hero in his head. Uh, to the degree that he skips the parade and the Navy has to send in uh, a double of his approximate appearance and build. Really? Who puts, who, you know, wraps a Union Jack around him and rides in the parade in ways that everyone thinks they've seen the hero of Camperdown and is, in fact, throwing money. So the double ended up, I think, being able to retire on the coins he collected from the single parade Boy, that Crawford had skipped. Craft, Crawford, kind of a dummy in that situation. Well, it, it goes on. Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens in London uh, wants to offer him $100 a week to appear in uh, The Hero of Camperdown, a weekly spectacle in which, uh, you know, he, uh, reenactment of his uh, victory in which he, he tells his story. This is like being the Jeopardy goat. You want to take these opportunities while it's still fresh in people's minds. It's not going to be on the table forever, Jack. Right. Let me tell you, the 15 minutes will fade. But he just appears to be not, I mean, he's a, he's a simple keelman. He hauled coal on the Weir and Tyne rivers in the north of England. He's not comfortable with these fancy big city ways. Right. Uh, he hates the pottery that he, even in his hometown, Sunderland starts to produce commemorative pottery with their favorite son uh, uh, decorated on, on the side of the pottery with, oh. a little, with a little rhyming doggerel about his uh, amazing feats. That's a double slap in the face to the Dutch. Because <laughs> it's pottery? Yeah. <laughs> That's our thing. <laughs> uh, so really, the the next few years is him avoiding being the hero of Camperdown. He does agree to a wa- walk in uh, in Lord Nelson's funeral. He must have admired uh, Horatio Nelson. Sure, everyone did. Uh, very much. Um, and he does accept a silver medal that the, the city of Sunderland forges for him. So apparently he's more comfortable with honors in his native northern milieu. And this is something that we see from the north of England. He's a Stark, not a Lannister. He, right. he does not trust these uh, soft Southerners with their filthy Southern ways. Uh, but he uh, goes back to regular life. Um, despite being the hero of Camperdown, he marries his sweetheart of St. Paul's Cathedral, returns to the north, goes back to work as a keelman. And this is really rough work. This yeah. Is, this and- is backbreaking work loading coal from the, you know, from the, Peers to the ships, I guess. This is the kind of like working class ethic that migrated into the punk rock ethic of not just issuing a superficial fame and fortune, but but actually like denying the money that comes with it in order to go back to backbreaking labor. It always feels to me like it would be an insult to the other people working with you, where they were like, dude, you had a shot to take the hundred pounds and go live across the street from, you know, where the the coal dust isn't actually burning your children, and you came back here? Why? It's the it's the goodwill hunting problem of uh 
you know, where Ben Affleck says, we don't want you here. Yeah. You, like, you can get out. Yeah. Do us a favor and go where we all dream, uh, where we all dream to be. If you can. I wonder why somebody in Crawford's shoes wouldn't do it. I mean, it could be that he, because we don't know what happened on the deck of the venerable. It could be that he thinks the, uh, the mythologizing is a little outsized for what actually happened. Well, sure, but it's a kind of self-mythologizing to go back to a life of complete humility unless you are wearing the hair shirt for some reason. But I don't know. I wonder, I, if, I wonder if there is a hair shirt involved. I mean, this is a, a more religious time. If he's a, a certain kind of severe northern uh, Protestant of some kind, maybe he doesn't think it's seemly. I mean, I'm a diamond tie tack wearing fancy dude from Seattle with a perfumed hanky tucked up my sleeve. Maybe I can't understand the the decision making of this kind of um I mean, there's also just that that the poor do not make great decisions. It's it's one of the things that perpetuates poverty is that you know, we have the privilege of having been educated about this stuff, having the time to consider our decisions. You know, not being, not having the panic that comes from being, having been at the point of starvation multiple times in your life. Right. I mean, maybe he just thought, this is a drag. This is the, I guess this would be the punk musician <laughs> reply. This is a drag. Hey man, it's a drag, man. I'm, I'm going back to my, to my buddies. Going uh, uh, back to my plow. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what is that? Isn't that song about being some kind of kept man though? Um. Is it? I'd never read that subtext. Wait, what is Goodbye Yellow Brick Road even about? It's about going back to his plow. It's about getting out of the limelight and headed back to his little small town. But is is his limelight being a pop star? Are we supposed to think this is a Elton slash Bernie type? Well, it's, you know, Bernie, Bernie's spotlight was not being a pop star. It was being the the rich guy that was standing at the cor- in the corner at the pop star's party, actually pulling babes. I mean, he says, uh, you know, you can't hold me forever. I didn't sign up for you. I guess I thought he was addressing some kind of romantic partner. And I guess that is more, that's more um, explicit in the second verse um, when he says, it'll take you a couple of vodka and tonics, set you on your feet again. Maybe you'll get a replacement. I mean, he could be talking to a boss. Yeah, but he's talking to Elton at that point, right? It's all, it's, you think he's talking to himself? I don't, I, I, I don't get the feeling that Bernie had all of the... I mean, I'm just basing this on on this most recent biopic, but he seemed like he kind of just got along pretty good. Got 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 the cash, bought some clothes. He got the cash and had none of the expensive habits. So you're saying you don't think Goodbye Yellow Brick Road is addressed to a to any kind of a wealthy city romantic partner? Well, he talks about going back to the howling old owl in the woods. Yeah, I can't really stick up for Say many Bernie Taupin lyrics. Back uh, to the hunting the horny back toad. The problem is it has to rhyme with yellow brick road. Right. But so, I still feel like you could have come up with a lot of rhymes for road you're that a, aren't toad. You're a songwriter, John. Do you feel like the two things that convey the bucolic countryside are mostly a howling owl and a horny back toad? The thing about uh, lyricists like Robert Hunter or Bernie Taupin who connected to singers and songwriters like Jerry Garcia and... Elton John. They didn't have to sing the song. They stuff. really got lucky, right? I <laughs> yeah. mean, you know, their lyrics aren't, they don't necessarily have to be good. If you think about, if you think about Rush lyrics, they can be a little bit tortured, 
but Getty Lee really sells them. Road is a hard word to rhyme. You could say, um, you could say my rural abode. Abode. I guess. Um, you could say, uh, you know, it could be some kind of chode. A, it could be some you kind could of call somebody a chode. <laughs> but it's got to be a rural. It's got. It could be a wagon with a load. Right. You I, don't want to say load though in songs very often. Yeah, I mean, it's really the the horse that I rode. I guess that you can't do road and road. That's not a rhyme. You could talk about putting your That's identity, uh, putting all your data in the cloud. <laughs> yeah, if you're Scottish, <laughs> this becomes a lot easier. Uh, anyway, so for you know, we can't psychologize. Jack Crawford at this point. Right. But he is straight up a Will Hunting who just wants to be back with his mates. Right. Uh, and he spends the rest of his life. As a keelman. He, he does get a, he does get a uh, some kind of a pension. He gets, I don't know, 30 pounds annually from, from the, the crown or the admiralty or something. Sure. Okay. So that's not nothing. Um, but uh, it does not last. He finds himself uh, in poverty multiple times over the course of his life. According to one account, he pawned the silver medal that the city of Sunderland gave him on seven different occasions. But got it out each time. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Either that or somebody went and got it and gave it back to him. Um, you hear about Olympic medalists who end up pawning their oh, that's so sad. gold medals. It's pretty bad. Uh, and he's like an Olympic medalist. He peaked very early. He was 23 when he shot to national fame, and then that was... That was kind of the high point. So all the, all the money, you know, this, what he made from his living as a keelman on the weir mostly went to his beloved grog. I guess he was a heavy drinker and a local character and fun guy, like a lot of like a lot of heavy drinkers. Uh-huh. He was well known on the east end of Sunderland for being a you know a, a local card, and it was at one point rode a pig through an alleyway. That was kind of the highlight of his later life. Oh man! He was so how you know. So this is really a case of, I mean, if you want to compare it to something modern, it's it's how we treat veterans. Although I have to, I have to say, side by side, being twenty three and climbing up a, a mast under fire and hammering a flag, or being fifty three. And riding a pig through an alley, which is the greater feat? <laughs> like you're, you're obviously a man in his early fifties, thinking, "I can still do one of these things." <laughs> yeah, no, that that door is not closed to you, John. You could be riding a pig. I'm through, not fifty three through an alley. Alley, you've got you've got time. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have to do much to earn an iron cross if your name has Vaughn in front of it. Uh, <laughs> you just you get it as a matter of course. And that was true in the Royal Navy. But if you think as about, well. I mean, this this time period, like Rimbaud was one of the great poets of his time, but by the by the age of twenty three, had already. Um, How about this? Back to the Howling Old Owl in the Wood, reading a book by Rimbaud. Oh, there you go. That's not bad. Why? Why? Why didn't he do it? Why didn't he? Why didn't he uh, rhyme "road" with "rambode" as you say? <laughs> yeah, you'd have to cheat on the D because Bernie Toppin knows he's not going to be on stage singing the thing. He can right. he can make it as as flower as he wants. And Elton can sell anything, right? Sorry, what were you saying about Rambode's military oh, well, experience? Rambode. Uh, well, he was already like a clerk in some some office in Egypt by the time he was twenty three. After having been one of the most celebrated and still beloved poets of his time uh, and died kind of obscure, you know, obscurely kind of uh, renouncing his own art or at least denying it, uh, unwilling to, unwilling to live in fame 
I, I he was troubled. He was. There's but, probably some mental illness issues there that Crawford may not have had to deal with. But you see, I think uh, you see in artists a uh, feeling like uh, what they 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 they're a one hit wonder, for instance, and they want to. Um, Oh, think about the actor who played Anakin Skywalker. Oh, right. Jake what, Lloyd. Yeah. What happened to Jake Lloyd? He decided that having been granted this incredible gift of uh, of like instant stardom as Anakin, he never made another movie. He left Hollywood because he felt like he – or not – He, I guess he's returned to Hollywood and made subsequent films, but he didn't trade on his – on his start, no, it was awful. I, I, my memory of this is he he was treated. Uh, people carried over their visceral feelings about the disappointment of that movie to him, and he oh. took the bad reviews of his performance in his movie very seriously, and it led to a really sad adolescence full of all kinds of substance issues and, and run-ins with the law. Oh, that's terrible. Did he ever ride a pig down an alley? It's not. It's not too late <laughs> to ride a wampret down an alley on Tatooine. Anyway, uh, uh, the story of the hero of Camperdown's later life of of poverty and sadness probably ends uh, to such a sad degree that it's almost ironic. In the 19th century, a series of cholera epidemics swept Europe. Oh boy! Um, I was looking up the numbers, and the uh, you know these they started in. Often in Southern Asia, where uh, you know cholera is endemic in some of the river life, you know it requires people drinking and pooping in the same place. Right. And once trade increased such that that could spread to Europe, it did. That's the thing. If you uh, if you are on a ship, you have all every likelihood of drinking and pooping pretty proximate to one another. If you've got some. Ensign dumb Kevin aboard. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so waves of cholera swept the world, you know, starting, you know, coming up from Southeast Asia into India, Russia, Europe. Uh, millions died. It, the estimates are hard to come by. And it happened in waves. So these lasted for decades. But it seems to be kind of analogous uh, casualty-wise to the Spanish flu pandemic. Really? That of, many people? Yeah, of the 1920s. Like it could have been 50 million deaths. We don't really know. And it was all solved by that doctor in London who closed the the drinking well? He, uh, yeah, John Snow, when he realized in London that, he, well, when he realized he knew nothing, I guess, and he realized that it must be transferred by water, just kind of by drawing a, a, a scatter plot of where the cases were. Right. He realized it had to be water, took the handle off the well, according to common belief. And, uh, and and destroyed the 19th century idea that it was miasma, some kind of hard-to-pinpoint bad air that was spreading cholera. Right. That, in fact, it was tainted water. Uh, but, uh, that you know, that was the third of, of, of a series of pandemics that had swept across England. And it's funny that we don't remember them now, really. Um, maybe that's an encouraging sign in the grip of a pandemic now that the memory of it really doesn't last. It feels like a flu is something that you we're still helpless against whereas a cholera epidemic Check. is kind of embarrassing because it's like it was just poop in the water like nobody wants to hear that story and also almost all the deaths were dehydration it was all death by diarrhea and as soon as the saline drip was invented to treat it uh people just didn't die of cholera anymore because they had love in its time they had, oh yeah, they, they've got plenty of time for love even. Yeah, that's right. I mean, 
between diarrhea, between and, all the diarrheas. Yeah, and, all the magical realism that, that it spawned. It used to be called Love Between the Diarrheas, and they changed the name. Anyway, as the second wave of this pandemic hit England in the 1830s, you know, millions of Europeans died, and uh, Sunderland got it first because they were a port city. They, they, were, they received the ships on which cholera, diarrhea, guy zero um, was aboard. And in 1831, Crawford, the hero of Camperdown, became the second British subject to die in, oh. in this cholera pandemic. Oh, well, and that's kind of an interesting epitaph, right? Did that, did, did his fame, uh, did his fame like propel him to the front page of the London Times as the second victim or did he die in obscurity? Uh, no, I think he died in relative obscurity. I don't know if the discovery that that was him was something that even made local news or if it's something that later historians pieced together. But uh, no, he died in the saddest possible circumstances and you know, it, it's a, uh, we should confess to the future links. So that's not something we have figured out even in our time yet, you know, what to do with people who are kind of broken by war or whose lives are interrupted by it. And, uh, you know, even when they try to, to recapture the life they had before, maybe don't have all the opportunities or the wherewithal that they would have without this kind of traumatic punctuation in their lives. Well, you know, in, in the current global pandemic, it's yet to fully bloom to the extent that we could positively identify class difference in terms of rates of infection, right? We don't yet, it still seems like it's affecting everyone equally and hospitals in urban centers, even wealthy hospitals and wealthy patrons are, are all suffering from the same lack of uh, availability, except millionaires get private testing. David Gevin gets a yacht. Right. David Gevin gets away. We're speaking from a few months in the past, but yes, at this point, it's not clear, but there do, there do seem to be trends. The United States, because of its lack of socialized, centralized healthcare, does seem to be a place where you will start to see class distinctions, especially because some kind of tribalist war kind of arose about whether, you know, which side of the virus hoax are you on? If, right. you, if you take it seriously, that's a signifier of... of leftist politics and therefore so you wonder whether Birmingham Alabama is going to have like a a, a real outbreak like a, pol a a politically noticeable outbreak and whether or not veterans and the poor will suffer um exponentially greater rates of infection than you know people up here in Seattle who are able to self quarantine right people with tech jobs right. who can sit at home thinking unemployment's going to go up to 20% but it doesn't affect me, typey, 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 typey. So I wonder, I mean, as you say, this episode will air after some of this uh, will have um, been more clear to, to uh, presentlings. Once again, the listeners know more than we do. And that concludes The Hero of Camperdown, entry 583.IS3323. Certificate number 50975 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era and is spreading pestilence of the mind, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at, at Omnibus Project. And Ken's hilarious and topical tweets and my intentionally 
obtuse tweets, even the great ones that should have 10,000 faves, only really are gettable by this tiny fraction of the of my listening public. Really? You think you're a mass culture sensation that just hasn't hasn't broken yet? I don't know. I sent out a couple of tweets last week that... Were they the ones about which Seattle uh, no. restaurants are in Wallingford and which are in the university district? No. No, no, no. But that one... You didn't that, think that would catch on? That one tweet where I said, uh, my daughter's been reading aloud from the Star Wars encyclopedia and these biographies all sound really made up. That was hilarious. And if you had posted that, you'd have 50,000 faves. Let's start doing a little A-B thing where I am... Every time you tweet, I immediately tweet the same joke out, and we see what, we see what you deserve. That's not going to work. What, what should happen is every time I tweet, you should retweet it with a, with a little comment like, ha, 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 my friend John is the most hilarious follow, follow you'll ever get on Twitter. Make sure to like and share. Anyway, make sure you like and share all my tweets at John Roderick. And you can go to my Instagram account where things are actually friendly and nobody ever yells at you under my same name. Uh, email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com where Ken will read your letter and once every six months forward me the ones that compliment me or some portion of them. If any. Uh, you can uh, hang out with other futurelings at Facebook, Reddit, Discord, and on um, dog fancier message boards, all kinds of places. You should go wherever... You go. Start an omnibus thread. And talk, uh, talk about omnibus. See what happens. See if you're asked to leave. You can send us wonderful things, wonderful, wonderful things only, at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And if it, uh, if it strikes your fancy, you can support the show with a, uh, a monetary contribution at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. And uh, at our Patreon site... There are many tiers, bonus tiers, which uh, if you contribute to the show, we we have a separate uh, separate monthly show. You'll hear we, things, you'll see things. That's right. You at sufficiently high levels, you might receive tactical things you can touch or even influence the direction of the show. Yep, you can. We will send you our actual show notes as read with my coffee stains and Ken's diet Dr Pepper stains. We'll probably send some signed chick tracts as well. Because what am I going to do with these all now? So that's patreon.com slash omnibus project. Listeners, from our vantage point in the distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope that doesn't keep us from making pandemic predictions, but we have no idea. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear it may never come. If the worst comes soon, then this recording, like all our recordings, could be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. 